Hi, Jeff here from the University of Kentucky. Ciao, I'm Kristen from the University of Minnesota. Salut, this is Tina from the University of Colorado. And alam, greetings. This is Stuart from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to Pharmacy Fika. A podcast for pharmacy educators by pharmacy educators. Where we discuss teaching and learning, scholarship, and academic life. In Sweden, uh, a fika is a coffee break, but it's much more than that. It's a state of mind and attitude. It's all about slowing down. And finding time for friends and colleagues. While you sip a beverage and enjoy a little something nice to eat. So join us. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Pharmacy Fika. It is a crisp morning here in Mississippi. It's actually the first day it's felt like fall here. When I woke up, it was 33 degrees, which for Mississippi is kind of cool, but I love it. It's good to see that we got some cooler weather. Well, I wanted to ask Jeff first today if he brought a snack. No, just water. <laughs> You know, we all just wait, Jeff. <laughs> we wait to see. I don't know why you keep asking me the same thing every time. <laughs> you have surprised us with an apple. It actually depends on the time that we record. So this is actually recording during my normal lunch time. So I've got my lunch waiting on me right after. If we record earlier, then it's in my normal snacking time. So. I, I always just wait for Jeff, like I think for Christmas, he's going to have like a big Henry VIII turkey leg. Just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think one of the things, because we are in different time zones, three different time zones, the natural phenomena of the fika joining together and having snacked together is a little more challenging. <laughs> but we do hope that people, when they gather together to listen to the podcast, bring snack and beverages because that's a part of the experience to be Absolutely. together. So Kristen. Plantain chips. Yum, yum. Ooh, that's nice. Plantain chips. Yeah. yeah. Exotic. You got a beverage? <laughs> Just some water. That's not too exciting. I have because right now it's the RX Riding Challenge Fortnite. I am having the 100% ginger juice drinks mix. It's extra fiery. I like a a lot of burn, um, and, I, and it's my treat for getting my writing goals today. Good for you. Well, I uh, just came back from ACCP, their global conference in San Francisco, so I'm a little jet-lagged this morning because I got in quite late last night, and so I'm eating a delayed breakfast this morning with overnight oats, which my wife made for me, which is delicious. I love them. And a cup of sweet chai of mine, which is one of the brand names for some chai tea. Yeah, so it's great to see you all again. As I said, it was a great conference at ACCP. And one of the themes of the conference was actually related to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the experiential environment. And so one of the things that I thought we would talk about in one of the conversations that a lot of campuses have had over the last year or two or three is related to inclusive teaching. So I wanted to start out the whole conversation with just a basic question, which is, what is inclusive teaching? What in your mind is conjured up when you think about inclusive teaching? What have you talked about on your campus as to what it means to be more inclusive in your teaching? I think when that terminology first started to come out, 
the reaction, you just react to the term. And the reaction was, oh, so I'm appealing to all the learning styles. I'm including everyone's preferences. And so we've had to kind of move beyond that. I would say, and thanks for bringing up what I consider almost foul language at this point, learning styles, and and not that preferences are not important or not a contributor to engagement, but I'm really still learning on this journey. I'm learning a lot from learners. I'm learning a lot from people who are working in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And I've even learned that some of the terminologies that we use are not contemporary. And I admit I can struggle to keep up. We're having some offline conversations about what generates energy in the face-to-face or virtual classroom and having everybody be able to be present, attitudinally present, engaged, and feeling part of that. It's a special type of teaching magic, I think. So as you can probably tell, Stuart, this is a difficult question to answer as everyone has paused and <laughs> hesitated. But when you ask it, I mean, I have thoughts that come to my mind, and but then additional questions, I think like most of us do. The thought in my mind is if someone said, you have to define inclusive teaching right now, what is it? The short answer for me is making sure that every student in the class is part of that learning community and can succeed. Now, there are also lots of other questions of what are the different ways that we're looking at being inclusive? Is it learning styles? Is it is it race? Is it gender? Is it socioeconomic status? Is it physical abilities? I mean, all the different ways that we slice and dice people into our differences and I think you can, you know, we can slice and dice people into so many different differences that it becomes challenging to like, how do we address all of these things? But to me, the simple answer is just trying to make sure every student is part of that community. But like the others, I'm still like, this is still nebulous to me. And I, I'm not really comfortable in saying like, oh yeah, I've got this under control and I know what to say and what to do and how to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I think that is one of the biggest challenges is that there are there's a great deal of diversity in our students and again i don't mean that just in terms of racial or gender identity and things like that learning styles which i think is what a lot of people gravitated to early on actually i, I don't think catering to learning styles one it's not possible and two i think it's actually a disservice to students to try to cater to their particular learning style because we know that having a broad range of ways of being capable of learning is important. There are lots of different learning styles too, uh, lots of different ways of looking at styles of learning. So I don't think that's particularly helpful way of thinking about inclusive teaching. So we've been reading at our school, at the university level, actually, this book, Inclusive Teaching Strategies for Promoting Equity in the College Classroom by Hogan and Sathy. And in it, their premise is the best thing you can do is create a highly structured learning environment. And what they say that Typically, why students, first-generation students, or students of different preparedness, when they get to college, they don't do well because the, the environment is so 
unstructured. In other words, the typical college class is that you have long period of time and then you have a midterm, long period of time, a project, long period of time, a final. And then it all comes down to these three things and you expect students to have managed their time and to be prepared for that. And, and while that's a great skill to develop, most students, particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds or have not gone to college before, don't know what to expect, do not thrive in that kind of unstructured environment where everything comes down to these two exams and this one paper you have to write. And that creating an environment which is highly structured with weekly things that they have to deliver keeps them on track much better. And that's, the I would say, the basic premise of their book. But it puts a lot of burden on the faculty then to create this high structure, lots of feedback. I mean, I could see that it works for all sorts of students, but particularly for the student who might otherwise struggle. And I think that's just a challenge for the faculty to create a course like that. So I don't know what your experiences have been and whether your universities are encouraging a lot more structure to courses in order to reach those students who are struggling. What we define as teaching has changed a lot, right? And the academy may or may not be prepared for that. We might not have our workforce adequately. So for example, they may say, what I define as teaching is the time I'm in the classroom with the students and writing the exam, marking the exam, the, those basic things. I think, I'm sure you did see the the piece about the NYU <laughs> organic chemistry professor whose contract wasn't renewed, and it's much more complicated that I can get into now, but that generated a huge conversation here at Colorado. Journalism is designed to get you to read journalism, and so they, they have to tell the story in a way that might polarize or get your emotions to, to be very high. But in this situation, it was a an 84-year-old organic chemistry teacher at NYU who had, basically the students had put forward a petition about some changes they wanted to see in the class. They felt that his approach was demeaning and belittling. They did not ask that he be fired. The university ultimately decided not to renew his contract. And there were sort of a groundswell of comments that say, oh my gosh, this person is 84 years old and they're teaching a massive class that's a feeder to every health profession course and they're just out of it. And then the other side was you've got whiny, snively students who are asking for everything to be easier. And as we began to talk about it, I think Again, the truth is some is more complicated than all of that. Yesterday, we looked at some of the responses in the Chronicle for Higher Education, and we could we'll put the links and the links to the Chronicle response, I think, in the show notes. But it really made me go back and think. Here at Colorado, we don't even have a document that describes what it means to be a course director or even an instructor at UCSF. We had spent a lot of time creating that and socializing that so that we kind of got people on the same page of what, if we talk about inclusive teaching or having a radically welcome classroom, I I suspect we have people, and it's not just by age, but people who say, that's not my definition. My definition is content expert, transmission of this expertise that I have, and that's the end of my job. And so... I don't know if if some of your campuses have had that conversation of sort of renorming what it means to be a teacher. Right. 
I like Jeff's definition a lot because it resonates with me about creating a classroom environment, a, a learning community where everyone can be successful. And that will be different from year to year. For example, if you have someone who has some learning disability, you may have to do extra things. If you have someone who has a hearing difficulties. You may have to provide transcripts for all your audio, which you may or may not ordinarily do. You probably should be ordinarily doing it, but having some sort of design that's actually changed because you have people in your learning environment that need different kinds of supports from year to year. I don't think we often think that way. We think we design it this one way and that's it. You know, if you don't succeed, oh well. But I think inclusive teaching does think through And that gets into what are the norms, what are the things that you need to consider from each year as a course instructor to make make it possible for each student to succeed. One other thing, I think about, and this is more on the clinician side probably than the the biomedical sciences side, but when we talk about being person-centered care for our patients that we're working with, we've put a lot of energy into teaching students about person-centered care. And I wonder if this sort of person-centered teaching, the corollary to that is some of those same strategies, some of those same, you know, understanding what motivates our patients, what they want, how they define success is, are the same techniques I think that we would possibly use with students, but we've just kind of kept those worlds separate it's hard. <laughs> it's, 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 it's tough to do, but I think it is important as we make this transition to, to what will teaching and learning of the present and future look like? Just such a complicated topic, depending on what vantage point you look at it from. I've been sitting here trying to think about what would an inclusive classroom look like from a student's perspective? Because we've been talking about the the faculty member's perspective and what the faculty member is contributing and are diverse perspectives welcomed? Mm-hmm. And how are those even known? Like, mm-hmm. are, are, to me, it's hard to have an, an inclusive environment if we're not talking to one another, if we're not in active learning in some way, if we're not in community together. Mm-hmm. And like Tina was saying, do our faculty have the skills to create that kind of environment, to manage that kind of environment? Because it's a different skill set than content provision. Yeah, Kristen, I think that's the good point of we don't know. I look at on a class of 130, I don't know every individual's thoughts, perspectives, worries, inabilities. And I often find out, I'm often very surprised once I have students maybe on an academia rotation after the year after I teach them and I find out things about them that you know, are very startling and surprising. Some good, some are like, well, I wish I would have known that when I was teaching you because I could have done a better job. But being able to find that, all of those different things, if someone can do that well, I would like to know how they do it. Okay. I understand, and I think obviously a lot of the, a lot of these types of discussions are typically thought of in the small undergraduate classrooms of 20 and 30 and you having a closer knit. And I think in those situations you can do it, but there's a, there's a point when the size of a class prevents the intimate knowledge that you need to address every individual's need. And so is the solution to that creating opportunities for smaller groups of students to have faculty interaction 
because I think that's one of the things that's missing. So I think about one of the reasons why my doctor of pharmacy education was so much better than my bachelor of pharmacy education. Not that my, my BS in pharmacy wasn't good. I'm not saying that, but the class sizes, I went to the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy at that time, there are 220 students in a class. These are very large classes. The amount of individual attention generally came from extracurricular activities, not from classroom stuff. And that's when you get to know the faculty is outside of the classroom. But my PharmD program was only 18 of us. It was a post-bac PharmD program. That was an intimate. We knew every faculty. Every faculty knew us, and we knew each other. And for those who've gone to graduate programs, it's a very different kind of relationship with with the faculty. And they get to know you, and they, they do personalize the education to your needs. One could argue that that happens in the experiential learning environment if you have a gifted preceptor. Uh, they're good about that. Not all preceptors are attuned to that, but many are. But perhaps the solution is is a more of a docent kind of way of teaching, meaning students are assigned in small groups for perhaps their major classes to a faculty member or maybe two faculty members who meet with them on a regular basis, like this is what Yale does, right? You all live in a house and you have, you know, a much smaller group that works with students outside of the classroom, but it's it's academically focused. It's checking in on them. You have discussions related to materials that are part of their required classes. And I don't know of any pharmacy curriculum that does that, but I know some medical curriculums do it where they assign students in docent groups to faculty that are only of 10, 15 students each. What do you think of that as an idea? Should we be adopting something like that where we can have more of a personalized relationship with students? Well, and that sounds a lot like, to some degree, the living, learning communities and programs that are now very popular. And I was actually just in an interview, uh, not me, not interviewing for something, someone else interviewing for something, uh, <laughs> um, that, and about a job position that was mentioning all of the living learning programs we have here at the university and how those are actually being used to help address some of these inclusivity things. Because that, like you said, that is where individuals get to know each other. They're living together. They're eating together. They're doing other activities together versus the what too often now becomes, you know, almost a transactional educational environment. They come to class, they get their content, and then they leave. And I do think, and we've said this over and over and over, I think COVID has exacerbated some of those issues once again, because now I think the community aspect is a little harder and we're trying to rebuild that community that you're talking about. So are there particular tactics that you have tried, maybe successfully, maybe not so successfully, to try to create a more inclusive environment in any of the classes that you've taught? So I can describe one thing that I've done, possibly help me get that information that we talked about that we need. And I started this maybe three years ago. It was COVID related because it was in response to me not being around students enough to understand them or get to know them. So I actually made the very first assignment of the class is five question interview that they were just supposed to record on a video. Where are you from? What do you what would you do if you weren't in pharmacy school? What's your favorite activity outside of it? And is there something that you want to tell me that will help help me be a better teacher for you in the class? 
that's helpful for a number of ways for a number of students. And some it's just, you know, it's nothing really beneficial. But in a few cases, I mark something down about a student. It's like, I need to remember this for this particular student. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect, but it also takes a lot of time. You know, I watch all the videos, but it also helps me get to know names and get to know individuals. I like that. I think mm-hmm. that's a pretty neat strategy. And it gives students some activity to, to do. What is your perception of the student's receptivity to it or feeling that it's worthwhile for them to do it? So I don't know what they think in the beginning. (laughs) Uh, I can say the comments that I've gotten back on course evals have been, we appreciate that you've tried to get to know who I am. So I've gotten a few of those. I've not gotten any negative comments regarding that. I'm sure there were some uttered when they're recording it. It's like, I've got to do this stupid <laughs> video tonight. Yeah. Right. And I can tell those, those are the ones that the video is 20 seconds long. Yeah. Um, and then I 20 get 20 seconds started. long and submitted right. just at the deadline or yeah. shortly thereafter. Exactly. Yeah. And then I get some that are five minutes long and people are really going into things. I don't know. It's mixed, I'm sure. For me, I, I, what I think of first is some of the stuff we do in our leadership classes, and it may be easier in that content area, I don't know, but to the degree that we can get students talking to one another and appreciating all the experiences that brought them to the moment that they're in right now, and how that creates a richness in our community if we can draw on those experiences. So some of the assignments we've had are things like a life history kind of assignment where they maybe draw out on a piece of poster board the kind of major moments that have framed who they are as a leader, that have influenced their thinking of themselves as a leader. So any kind of like autobiographical stuff where we're allowing students to then share that with their colleagues and say, this is this is who I am, I think is a, a great step to kind of getting us started and setting a tone for the classroom. And also uh, what I like about that is how I as an individual can contribute to the classroom environment, right? Like I have these experiences that will be very valuable to the conversation and, and what we're learning about in this this class, or at least get them to begin thinking about what the value they bring to the table. And I think that's important. Yeah. And you know, I have to say we've done this in various years of the curriculum, these kinds of activities. And it's surprising. I think we make assumptions that the students are together all the time so they know each other really well. And to some degree they do. They might know their routines and and might know, you know, like their sport preferences and things like that. But when we do these kinds of activities, students inevitably will say, wow, you know, I sat next to you in class all these years and I didn't know that that was in your background and that, you know, that's so powerful. And of course, they they need to build that ability to to share about themselves. Yeah, that kind of thing obviously works best when you're in a smaller class. It's an elective, and you don't have 130 students because it would be challenging. Although you could break students up into smaller groups and have it within that group at least share those kinds of things. Exactly. Yep. One strategy that I haven't used this year, but I have used in other places where I've been is a virtual privilege walk. And you can Google privilege walk and see what a one in person looks like. This is people in a line and they're taking steps forward for certain characteristics and step back. And in that, it's pretty powerful, but you also know exactly where everybody is. In the virtual privilege walk, you're signing in and you know which it's a series of dots 
on the screen. Mm -hmm. You know which dot is you, but nobody else knows which dot is you. Right. So, so it's anonymous. In it's that anonymous. Case. You know where you are, but you don't know who anybody else is. So you're sort of watching that spread of pretty eye-opening things. And again, it's the activity is the introduction to the conversation. You can't right. just do the activity and go, yeah, we did the privilege walk. And it's more about, okay, look at the diversity in our room. And almost every time I've ever done it, even in groups that I might have thought were much more homogeneous, you start to see that spread. And I think those are more powerful conversation starters. I think the second thing is, so I've started just like those techniques that we use with with patients or the, the, the people that we care for as pharmacists of go back to first principles of language and trying to be more clear about what resources are available and how, how students can access those. And it's really, I've had students that are like, oh, thank you so much. I really, even though you were telling me that you have this learning center, I didn't really know what that meant or how they could help me or what accommodations or, you know, and I was like, oh yeah, I think we've normalized the language, but they, they don't. Again, for many students coming into pharmacy school, they may have had challenges previously, but the type of studying that was necessary to get into pharmacy school didn't highlight the challenges that they may have in a more intensive, complex program where everybody who gets in it was probably the top of their class at wherever they came. That's even a bigger cliff to come off of, right? Because you're like, but I've, I've always done well. Right. And now I'm doing the same things and I'm not. And right. there's shame and identity and fear. And I've never asked for help before. I don't even know how to say that. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, looking, going back and look at our language and saying, are we using the historic language of, of education? Or are we using the more contemporary community focused language of education? Well, I think one of the things that's emerged at many schools is these academic success programs that often are managed through the dean's office. And, and the intentions of that are, are very good, meaning their intention is to provide additional support to students who may be struggling. But I think some of the programs are, are not succeeding as much as they could. I'm sure they're having a benefit, but some of them are not succeeding as much as they could because either it's totally voluntary and students don't know what they could gain from plugging into that. Or it's not voluntary. It's like a referral. And it's like almost like a punishment that you got referred to the academic success program. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are and how to make those programs more inclusive, because that's the intent, right, is to provide more support. How would you potentially structure them if you were in charge of everything? Well, I love having a magic wand, <laughs> being able to control everything. I don't know that I know the answer to that question. No, I'm the person that when I get the magic wand, I just wish for more wishes. <laughs> well, I think one of the things you were talking about earlier, Tina, was that this idea that perhaps the referrals come too quickly. Yeah, I was talking about this is sort of around the time at my school that the first round of assessments are coming in. And our Office of Student Services always says, please tell us who's struggling. But I wonder, again, back to that patient 
scenario, or even what we might feel as faculty members, if you were not thriving, let's say you hadn't published a paper in a while, or you hadn't been successful with a grant, would you want the first person to reach out to you to be the dean or the provost at your university? Or would you want it to be somebody who at least you have a relationship with that you know, and also somebody who better understands what you might be struggling with? So it is sort of the first step of, and I don't want to use diagnosis because it's not what's wrong with someone. It's, It's deciphering, oh, you actually have a technical challenge associated with the area that I teach in, and you have you have missed a fundamental core concept, which means everything afterwards you're going to struggle with. Or is it you're trying to work too many hours to pay for your where you're staying, which would probably not be something that, the, that an individual teacher would be able to address, but they could be the triage point to say, oh, guess what? We have some help for you. Let me make sure that I can get you to those those people that can help you. But I think without that direct relationship with the person who, you know, honestly is is ultimately responsible for assigning your grade, that can actually be marginalizing to the person. All of a sudden, they're the person that has to go to this other person and they don't even really know why. Or this referral is kind of like an email referral yes. without any kind of conversation with the student. Yeah. yeah. And it's, so it creates more distance. There's already not enough closeness between faculty and students. And now you don't do well on a test. And then I send this email saying I'm referring you to the academic yes. success office. It creates even more distance. And it also means that the teacher doesn't get much feedback about it truly could be a foundational flaw in the way you were explaining how the pancreas works. And you might, if you have that first meeting, you also say, you know what, I've had three students who were struggling with that. Let me go back and look at how I was explaining that. So it not only helps the individual student, but it also helps on the teaching side as well. Right. And of course, the students who tend to struggle the most are those who are first time in college, those who are underprepared because they didn't go to strong schools before they came into pharmacy school and so on. And so in, in a very important way, these kinds of conversations with students and supporting the students who struggle is a part of inclusive teaching. Because inclusive teaching is all about everyone having an opportunity to be successful. That doesn't mean you're doing the work for them. No. But it, it means you're making the effort yeah. to try to address their needs. And some of this sounds like students not understanding the value in certain things. So maybe the early referrals. And this is... Oh, great. Now, this is another thing I've got to do. I'm already like got a lower grade and I need to study more, but now I've got to go meet with so-and-so. Yeah. 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 It almost feels like a punishment. Right. I think it's fascinating to watch how our conversations about teaching concepts evolve over time. And one of the observations I've made about our conversations around inclusivity is that Locally, for me, it's become a conversation about assessment, that inclusive teaching Mm. is about 
recognizing that not everyone responds well to a multiple choice exam. And so we need to have different kinds of assessments. And it's just interesting how narrow our conversations become, that that's that's one kind of technical aspect. And then it becomes all about where our energy goes, is that it becomes the whole, the energy behind and the strategies that we seek are all all in this narrow space instead of the bigger space that we're we're trying to affect. And I'm curious if others have had that that experience locally where you know you're introducing a big big concept but all of a sudden it gets like super technical and it's about one particular facet of it i think in at the moment it's about developing a highly structured environment to help more students succeed and and that is a method to address this but it isn't the only thing i mean we're not yeah. we're not having conversations about how to help students to feel like they belong or that they're contributing to the learning environment. So it is very complicated. I don't know that any of us could adopt all of the techniques and strategies that probably would make the learning environment more inclusive, but there's so many little pieces to this that I don't know if there'd be enough time in the day for me to do it. So it's, it's very challenging. Well, I think we have not come up with any solutions today, but other than to say we're thinking about it, right? We're all thinking about it, which is good. We're trying to learn more about it. We could use some more scholarship around this. And for those of you who are really interested in this area of scholarship, we would certainly welcome it and we'd read your paper. Absolutely. And our ultimate goal is that everyone can be successful regardless of their their circumstances. And it is a sign of a great teacher who's able to do that is to help more students be successful and not just to concentrate all their efforts on the ones that are already excelling. Well, goodbye, everybody. It's great to see you all again. And we'll see you again in December. See ya. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast where we enjoy coffee and conversations. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to a colleague and be sure to rate us. You can share your reactions on Twitter at Pharmacy Fika, but please be kind. This is a safe space. Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash Pharmacy Fika. Bye for now. Namaste. Das Vidanya. Au revoir. Thank you.